Welcome to the Engines of Texan, Episode 7, Spindletop. I'm Brandon C. The morning of January 10th, 1901, found brothers Al and Kurt Hamill on a drilling rig overlooking the Neches River. In earlier times, back when this spot had been part of an impresario grant to a friend of the podcast and first Texas vice president, Lorenzo de Zavala, it had been known as Cimas de Boneteros, a reference to the peculiar conical tops of the cypress trees at this particular spot that reminded observers of a tree known in English as a spindle, hence its later name in English, Spindletop. These trees sat near the top of a hill known as Sour Spring Mound, which actually audibly hissed with sulfurous seeps. Locals would sometimes drive hollow tubes into the ground and light the gas which came out as a sort of party trick. Then they'd scoop up some of the dirt, mix it with the bubbling spring water which gave the hill its name, and drink this lightly carbonated, or in this case methanated, lemonade. The Hamill brothers, however, weren't drilling for lemonade. For four months now, they, along with their older brother Jim, who was in town that morning getting supplies, they had been putting down an oil well. A local developer named Patillo Higgins had convinced himself that Sour Spring Mound was an anticline, the geologic structure that oil prospectors back east had started drilling with much success. Think of an anticline as like a pimple on the surface of the earth, just full of oil and just waiting to be popped. The problem for Higgins, however, was that everybody, from the experts at Standard Oil to the Texas state geologist, kept telling him that he was wrong. And this next fact sometimes gets lost in the telling of this story. Patillo Higgins was wrong. Sour Spring Mound was not an anticline. And the three test wells that Patillo Higgins drilled between 1893 and 1896 would have confirmed this if only he could have managed to drill through the so-called heaving sands that swallowed his drill string every time at around 400 feet subsurface. Higgins' inability to drill through these heaving sands allowed him to persist long enough in his delusion to be discovered by a Montenegrin salt mining engineer. As a salt engineer, Antonio Francesco Lucic was particularly well qualified to evaluate Higgins's mound. Lucic, or Anthony Lucas as he anglicized his name, had observed in nearby Louisiana that salt would sometimes well up from deep inside the earth in the shape of a giant plug, pushing up the surface above it. Only in this case, the resulting mounds weren't full of oil, they were full of salt. But, as that salt plug pushed up against the surface of the earth, sometimes it would mushroom out around the edges. And Lucas had discovered that that mushroom cap could trap significant quantities of oil underneath it. After talking to Higgins, Lucas came to suspect that Higgins might be right about Sour Spring Mound, but for all the wrong reasons he might be sitting on top of an oil-trapping salt dome, not an oil-containing anticline. And so in August of 1899, Anthony Lucas spud in his first well at Spindletop, targeting the edges of the subsurface mushroom that, of course, he had no way to actually see. The drilling on this first well went well enough for Lucas until, like Higgins, he hit the heaving sands. The formation collapsed in on his drill string and he lost the well, but not before noticing that the heaving sands that he was drilling were absolutely dripping with oil. Lucas decided to try again, but he realized he needed help, which is when he found the Hamill brothers. The Hamill brothers, Kurt, Jim, and Al, had grown up near Waco, 
planting watermelon, fattening calves, and raising what cotton they could for cash. As we heard in the previous episode, however, the economics of farming in 1890s Texas became increasingly challenging for smaller farmers. And after a hailstorm ruined his cotton crop in 1892, Jim Hamill had to go to work for a water well driller to pay his bills. It was good timing. In 1894, at 1,027 feet below the surface, a water well in nearby Corsicana struck oil. The well produced a whopping 2.5 barrels a day of oil. A barrel is 42 gallons, so call it 100 gallons a day. Which, I'm being sarcastic, that's a trivial amount of oil by today's standards. But it was enough to set off the first little, and let me emphasize little, Texas oil boom. Every water well driller in the area became, by default, an oil driller. And Jim Hamill was soon busy enough to bring on his brothers, Alan Kurt, to team up with him. And the three Hamill brothers went out on their own as drilling contractors, soon distinguishing themselves for their honesty, work ethic, and practical genius. On October 27, 1900, the Hamill brothers spud in Lucas's second spindle top well. And it wasn't but a few days before they reached the notorious heaving sands, at only 160 feet deep in this case. But they had a plan. Back in Corsicana, the Hamels had been one of the earliest adopters of rotary-style drilling rigs, rigs which turned the drill bit rather than hammered it into the rock. And in fact, as far as I can tell, Lucas's second spindle-top well here may have been the first well in history on which a rotary turntable set into the drill floor itself was used. But to deal with the heaving sands, the Hamels actually went back in time. They pulled the rotating drill string out of the hole and went back into the hole with just an 8-inch diameter string of casing. Once they got the casing on bottom, instead of rotating it, they just hammered the casing through the heaving sands. The sand fought them the entire time, belching sand up into the drive pipe, clogging it and occasionally sticking it. Progress was measured in inches per day. It took the Hamels 20 days to get through the next 90 feet of sand. And their reward, once they finally got through the heaving sands was that the well came to see them. Which is to say, they suffered a mini blowout. They tried to drill through the gas pocket, but it kept fighting them, powerfully and more so with each foot. They'd never encountered a well with this kind of energy before. They'd conquered the heaving sands, but now they had a new problem. And once again, the Hamels drew from their past experience. On previous wells, when drilling through waterlogged formations... The Hamels had noticed that sometimes the drill bit would churn up rock cuttings with the formation water into a thick slurry that actually slowed down the rotation of the drill bit. A 500-foot column of muddy water, after all, is a lot heavier and harder to rotate through than a 500-foot column of air. Normally this was bad because the extra weight could grind the drill bit to a halt. But heavy was exactly what the Hamels needed right now. And so the Hamels decided to make their own slurry. They hired up some local hands, had them plow up 10 inches of clay topsoil at the base of their rig, and then built a makeshift corral on top of it. Then, like John Gates in San Antonio's military plaza 30 years prior, the Hamels brought in a small herd of cattle, stirred them up into a great big swirling stampede for four hours, and worked themselves up the first ever batch of drilling mud. By injecting this heavy drilling mud down into the hole, the Hamill brothers were able to weigh down the gas pocket while simultaneously drilling through it. And soon enough, they were all the way down to 700 feet, 800 feet, deeper than anyone had ever been beneath Sour Spring Mound. 
by December 1900, the Hamels were down to 870 feet subsurface, which is when Brother Al noticed a rainbow sheen on the surface of their drilling mud. It was oil. In later life, Al would estimate that the well at this point was making something like 50 barrels a day, an absolute barn burner at the time that would have made the cover of every newspaper in the state. But Lucas had promised himself that he would drill to 1,200 feet, which meant that he had 300 more feet to go. He told the Hamels to punch through. Once again, they snubbed the casing into the wellbore, cased over the oily sands that were flowing with enough force to clog up their drill string, and kept going. They had been making about five feet a day when on the morning of January 10th, at about 1,020 feet total depth, their progress slowed. Al and Kurt Hamill figured that their drill bit had dulled, so they pulled the drill string out of the hole and replaced the bit. They started tripping back in, but then, with 700 feet worth of drill stem in the hole, the entire assembly started to shake. But not just the assembly, the rig itself. A few seconds later, drilling mud came belching out of the hole, rising slowly until it was spilling up onto the rig floor itself. A bystander passing by recalled hearing a hissing, spewing sound at that point, followed by an audible rumble from beneath the earth. The rumble turned into a roar, and suddenly drilling mud came geysering out of the ground, through the rig floor, through the top of the derrick, launching rocks hundreds of feet into the air before raining down like artillery shells on the stunned Hamill brothers, who leapt from the rig floor to seek cover as 700 feet of drill pipe suddenly sprayed back out of the hole like silly string, flopping and snapping and bending and crashing back to the ground. Then just as suddenly as it had started, the drilling mud stopped spewing, and the roar settled back into a sour-smelling hiss. After a few unforgettable minutes, the gas cap gave out, and the hiss subsided. Al and Kurt Hamill cautiously walked back over to the drilling rig. The derrick was all but ruined. Thousands of dollars of drill pipe were reduced to scrap iron. The bottom joint of pipe with the drill bit still attached was actually sticking up out of the ground like a javelin nearby. Still a little bit dazed, Al worked up the courage to approach the hole itself. He looked inside, and deep down he saw a dark, bubbling fluid, rising and falling rhythmically, as if it were breathing, as if some sleeping, quote, giant under a hill, quote, had been awakened, to use the title of Joe Stiles, Judith Walker Lindsley, and Ellen Walker Reinstra's spectacular history of Spindletop. With each giant breath, however, the Hamill brothers realized that the earth was pumping the fluid column a little closer to the surface. The brothers pulled back, the fluid now starting to bubble out of the wellbore and onto the surface. This wasn't drilling mud this time, however. It was oil, a stream of pure oil burbling out of the ground. There were stories from the old world, places like Baku and Azerbaijan, where oil flowed out of the ground like an artesian spring, but those seemed like as much fantasy as lost cities of gold. And yet here it was, in Beaumont, Texas, more oil flowing out of the ground and under its own power than anyone on this continent had ever bailed or pumped or scooped out by other means. Then, from deep in the earth, another rumble, a great crescendo, and a shot like a cannon. A chunk of rock fired into the sky, a column of oil chasing it close behind, through the ragged rig floor, through the splintered derrick, a hundred feet or more into the air. A raging fountain of oil, audible from three miles away, Beaumontonians could hear, Beaumonters could see the spectacle up on the hill above them, and they rushed toward the source of the excitement. 
Jim Hamill was ahead of all of them, running up to the rig and pulling his brothers out of the shower of oil raining down on them. Lucas, a former officer in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was close behind, conscripting local men to build levees to contain the pooling oil that was threatening to deluge the town. Spindletop would rage for nine days before Lucas and the Hamels concocted a plan to control the awakened giant. Al Hamill eventually made his way to the base of the oil geyser and managed to cut, thread, and cap the remaining casing with a series of valves that at last allowed the team to shut in the flow of oil. The valves sticking out from the sides of the assembly gave it a roughly conical shape, like a Christmas tree or like the spindle tops, which had given this spot its name, which was yet another Hamill invention which sits atop every producing oil well in the world today. According to the authors of Giant Under a Hill, quote, the Lucas Gusher at Spindletop produced twice as much oil per day as all the wells in Pennsylvania. What was more, the first six gushers in the Spindletop field produced more oil per day than all the rest of the fields in the world put together, end quote. The widely accepted number is that Spindletop flowed something like 100,000 barrels per day, which I think is more than the entire state of Louisiana produces today. By the end of 1901, 138 wildly prolific wells had been brought in around Spindletop, with 46 more rigs still actively drilling, at a density of something like 20 wells per acre. The Spindletop 40th anniversary marker was only slightly exaggerating when it marked Lucas's gusher as the spot where, quote, a new era of civilization began, end quote. Within one year, coal-burning furnaces across the U.S. started switching to oil, Trains first, then steamships, then much of the rest of industry. The four-stroke internal combustion engine was also coming into its own at precisely the same moment, waiting for oil, quote, like a bride on the threshold of the new century, end quote, to use the poetic phrasing of the authors of Giant Under the Hill. The world wouldn't see another adoption curve this aggressive until the arrival of the personal computer. More on that in future episodes. But it's because oil was so much more radically energy-dense and now, after Spindletop, more plentiful than anything that came before it. In 1901, 900 pounds of oil cost about 60 cents, but could produce as much energy as $3.50 worth of coal, which weighed twice as much. That's a 12x advantage in terms of energy density. Oil allowed for the concentration of massive numbers of people into mega metropolises like never before in human history. Prior to the hydrocarbon age, cities had to draw on areas nearly 30 times their size for their energy needs, in the forms of forests or crop residues. Post-Spindletop, cities could get their energy from a surface area something like one one-thousandth of the area of the city, even as energy use within those cities increased per capita something like 10x. Empowered by cheap, dense energy in the form of hydrocarbons, cities became autocatalytic engines of innovation that fed upon themselves. Since the discovery of oil, as the population of a city doubles, its productivity goes up 130%. The world began to urbanize, like never before, and Texas was no exception. When the Hamill brothers were born in the 1870s, 95% of Texans lived on farms. By 1933, that number was down to 33%, and by 1955, it was in the single digits. And the closer by and the cheaper the oil was to a city, the more benefit to the cities involved. By the 1820s, oil towns like Dallas and Houston left behind farm and ranching centers like San Antonio as the largest cities in the state. By a long shot. 
And yet, in some ways, the discovery of oil at first only reinforced the colonial nature of Texas's economy. Just like cotton and just like cattle, oil was a low-margin commodity that Texans shipped to manufacturers out of state who seemed to capture all the margin and then return the products as finished goods on railroads owned by evil eastern capitalists. But something interesting happened after the discovery of oil. Texans became capitalists. Oil was similar enough to cotton and cattle and lumber, commodities that came from the land, that Texans very quickly figured out how to produce it cheaply and in massive quantities. But oil yielded runaway margins, the likes of which hadn't been seen since maybe the first years of cotton cultivation in the state. And for the first time in its history, Texas started to accumulate capital. Texans were receiving $500 million a year in royalty payments alone on $715 million of assessed value in place by 1955, all of this from zero 50 years before. Now, of course, this new wealth tended to follow the patterns of old wealth. It was the great farming, ranching, and lumbering barons who became the first great oil barons. But some of that capital got reinvested in businesses in and around this great new industry. Howard Hughes Sr.'s self-cleaning tricone bit was just one example of the indirect fortunes that oil made in Texas and which soon began to project themselves out onto the world. The effects of local capital formation and the benefits that this brought to a state long starved for capital were powerful incentives for state agencies, like the Texas Railroad Commission, to reconsider their regulatory models. Unsurprisingly, the Railroad Commission and many other Texas state legislators turned away from the more antagonistic Anglo-American regulatory model in favor of a regulatory system that, frankly, better served the state's economic and political interests. From the 1930s to 1960s, the Texas Railroad Commission effectively controlled the world oil price through its proration orders, its setting of production quotas for Texas oil producers. OPEC would very openly model itself on the Texas Railroad Commission later on, whose market power it would replace in the 1970s. But what will stand out to listeners of this season of the podcast is the authority under which the Railroad Commission exercised this proration authority, under a so-called fair share doctrine, with a dual mandate to prevent waste and to promote the development of the resource. The Railroad Commission had ended up adopting the same regulatory model as the old frontier Spanish watermasters. But what truly transformed Texas into a modern, rather than purely colonial economy, I would argue, wasn't the discovery of oil. It was the development of the oil refining and petrochemical industries that finally allowed Texans to capture the lion's share of the margin of the commodities that they produced. One statistic from the period claimed that one barrel of crude oil processed in the state contributed as much to the economy as three barrels of crude oil shipped elsewhere for refining. The margin in petrochemicals is even more striking. Professor Edelweiss at the University of Houston has demonstrated that 72% of the value of a barrel of oil comes from the 20% of the barrel that isn't combusted. That is, all the benzenes, toluenes, xylenes, ethanes, and ethylene, just to name a few, products which you know better as nylon, polyester, antifreeze, styrene, paint, refrigerants, pharmaceutical drugs, and frankly, most of the things that you call rubber. Not to mention the fertilizers and agrochemicals on which at least 40% of the global food supply depends. According to energy scholar Vaclav Schmiel, quote, no other energy use offers such a payback as higher crop yields resulting from the use of synthetic nitrogen, end quote. Even if Spindletop hadn't been the world's first great gusher, 
Texas's oil still would have been found and still been produced. But the fact that it happened first in Texas did concentrate a disproportionate amount of the investment and innovation in the industry in this state. Overnight, in historical terms anyway, Texas became an industrial powerhouse. By 1921, refining surpassed agriculture in terms of output in Texas. By 1929, it was worth three times the annual output of all agriculture in the state combined. By 1936, petroleum and petroleum products were the largest single category of goods hauled by the railroads, and it wasn't even close. 13.4 million tons that year, as compared to only 5 million tons of lumber, 1.7 million tons of cotton, and 1.1 million tons of livestock. In 1940, Texas had exactly zero chemical industry. By 1956, just 16 years later, Texas accounted for 85% of the petrochemical industry of the United States and 80% of all organic chemicals produced in the nation, which represented something like 20% of the entire industrial output of the U.S. economy at the time. And more than half of that production was located within 100 miles of Spindletop. Texas oil also created a powerful cultural legacy that we shouldn't ignore. Let's start with the image of the Texas oil man. As T.R. Fehrenbach put it, other Americans viewed the Texas oil man as, quote, something of a personification of ostentatious vulgarity, replacing the industrial barons of the American East. The oil man, like the second generation industrial rich, was freed from economic worry and responsibility to pursue whatever form of social disintegration he preferred, end quote. Texans, oddly, sometimes lean into this caricature as a way of thumbing their noses at coastal types that were already predisposed not to like Texans. But I think this antagonism in some way reflects the reality that oil-producing Texas had been placed on a counter-cyclical trajectory from the rest of the oil-consuming U.S. economy. As if Texanity needed a reason to feel exceptional, now macroeconomic circumstances confirmed it. When oil prices are low, the U.S. economy prospers, but Texas suffers. The direct, indirect, and induced impacts of the oil and gas industry still constitute something like 30% of the state economy. In the alternative, when oil prices are high, the U.S. economy drags. In Texas, which still constitutes 43% of the nation's oil production and 26% of its gas production, booms. The great fortunes made in oil also confirmed Texans' deeply held notions that true wealth only comes from land. That at least is a prejudice that I feel like I internalized at some point, and I'd argue that it's reflected in the way that the state pays its bills. Property taxes make up 50% of the state and local taxes collected in Texas each year. It's never been clear to me why a state with such a strong property rights tradition would tax that most sacred possession so aggressively, unless we trace it back to some kind of unquestioned belief that land is the only real measure of wealth. Anyway, we'll see in a later episode why this prejudice may have held Texans back from fully appreciating another non-land-based Texas innovation. But on the positive side, however, I do think this worldview is what's kept Texas at the forefront of energy development, even when that energy doesn't come in the form of a hydrocarbon. Texas is already the largest producer of wind power in the U.S., and, by the end of 2023, the largest producer of solar power as well. Those industries, as much as oil and lumber and cattle and cotton, are natural outgrowths of the Texan drive to maximize the output of every square inch of land at his or her disposal. And yet, even with Spindletop, it's not that hard to imagine an oil-producing Texas that did remain colonial in character. A place like Alaska or Saudi Arabia or Nigeria, where oil workers go for two weeks at a time and then return home to spend their money elsewhere. 
for being honest, Texas's climate is not materially more comfortable than any of those places. And in fact, I'd venture to say that it's a near certainty that even with Spindletop and everything else that's happened in Texas since, there would not be anywhere close to 30 million people living here today if not for the next engine of Texanity. I'm talking about air conditioning on the next episode of The Engines of Texanity. Thank you for listening. The best book on the story of Spindletop, hands down, is Giant Under the Hill by Joe Stiles, Judith Walker Lindsley, and Ellen Walker Reinstrom. I actually interviewed Joe Stiles for a witty conference a few years back, and she was great. This season is brought to you by the 11th Street River House in Bandera, Texas. Sort of. My wife and I have dreamed for years about owning a place in Bandera, and we finally bought a house there last year. Four blocks from the bars, three blocks from the Frontier Times Museum, with 120 feet of Medina River frontage and a collection of historic Texas maps on the wall, curated by yours truly. It's a great place to spend a weekend and to sort of indirectly support this podcast. Look it up under 11th Street River House on Airbnb or on VRBO. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. Stephen Bennett also composed and performed the theme music. You can find more about Stephen at info at nosomedia.com. David Moore designed the cover art for this season. You can find him at illustrationonline.com. For more information on our sources and other projects, please check out www.brandonseal.com.